You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, York Region. For more information, visit harvestyorkregion.ca. Well, what an amazing hope we have in the rock, which will not move, which is Jesus Christ the Lord. Hey, we live in a world where everything around us seems to be disintegrating. And people put their hopes in the weirdest of things. And uh, sometimes we get caught up in those things. We find ourselves putting our hope in our job um, or in a friendship. Um, uh, Even for Sue and I, in our marriage, um, that can't be the rock. Uh, The rock for me isn't Sue, and the rock for her isn't me. Although we're there to support and encourage and love and spur one another on, but the reality is uh, we're not the rock for each other because no matter how great your marriage is and ours is, um, they have problems and they have struggles. And I'm a failure on a regular basis. And uh, Sue needs to be forgiving and loving. And, and so the rock for her can't be me. Uh, the rock has to be the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I like to say this uh, statement around the office sometimes when things get a little bit tough. I'll say, um, life is tough and then you die. It's not really encouraging, um, but life is tough. And then you die. Uh, the Bible says each day has enough problems of its own. And there's all kinds of verses that are like that. And, but hey, the neat thing for the believer in Jesus Christ, although the statement is basically true, it's not complete for the follower of Christ. Because although life is tough and although the journey can be hard, and often it is, as followers of Jesus Christ, we have a great hope and we have victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have joy and we have peace Uh, But the reality is, for every one of us in this room, we're going to go out the door today, and before the week is over, we're going to go through something. And for some, it might be like a 1 out of 10 kind of thing, and for others, it might be a 9 out of 10, and life is tough. And Peter writes this book uh, to these churches to help them on their journey, because life is tough, filled with trials, discouragement, unmet expectation, attacks, judgments, fear, helplessness. And in the midst of all of that, we need a rock that will not move. And Peter, in the book of 1 Peter, you can take your Bibles and turn there if you haven't done that already. Uh, Peter is going to give us a whole bunch of tools in our toolbox that are going to help us, help us in our walk, help us in our journey to understand that Jesus Christ is the rock and that he won't move And and the tools we need to get through the things we need in life are going to be found in him and through him and for him. Uh, One of the key verses for me, there's lots of amazing verses in this book, but kind of a foundational verse for this series is actually found in chapter 2, verse 6. It says, for it stands in scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So I trust you found First Peter by now in chapter 1. Let's stand together. I'm going to read our text for today, just verses 1 and 2 today, as we do an introduction to this uh, amazing book that Peter wrote. First Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Father, thank you for your word today. 
Thank you for this amazing little letter that uh, Peter wrote to these churches. There was so much for them to help them in the trials and struggles that they would face. And there's so much in them that's going to help us, Lord, in the days and weeks that are ahead. So as we look into this, this book today, would you uh, open our eyes and um, our minds, God, give us understanding, give us hearts, God, to hear from your word, minds, God, that we would understand it. And then, Lord, would you build in us a passion because of the rock that will not move, Jesus Christ, the Lord, to live out for the fame of your name, for the glory of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you. You can uh, take your seats. I'm going to spend a little bit of time this morning just uh, giving you some background introduction uh, to this. You can take notes on it or not, but it's just really about uh, where this is all coming from and I kind of give you the, set, the setting. And so uh, the first question is, who wrote the book? And the answer is found in the very first word, Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, the word apostle means messenger. And in scripture, it's used in uh, two different ways. It's used in a, a very technical sense. And the apostles were the 12 and Paul. Paul calls himself an apostle that was born out of due season. We learned about his salvation last week out of Acts chapter 9. And, and he says, like, I, I met the Lord. So these were people who saw Christ and were committed by him to send out to go and deliver the message. And that's what uh, Peter's doing here. And so in that sense, um, they were ones who were sent out but they were ones who were sent out for Christ. It's, it's interesting. The Bible never calls people um, evangelists for Jesus Christ or prophets of Jesus Christ, but apostles of Jesus Christ. And, and it speaks of the authority with which he is bringing this message. I am bringing you this message on behalf of Jesus Christ. So there was that technical sense of those who were the 12 plus Paul, who were the apostles. But then in a general sense, it's a much broader group in Acts 14, 14. You can look it up when you get home, but it talks about Barnabas being one of the apostles. Well, he wasn't one of the 12 and he wasn't one of those ones. And so there's a, a more general sense of people who are messengers. But Peter specifically was one who was speaking with apostolic authority as he's writing scripture for us, and um, that's who wrote the book. Well, who was he? Um, his name was changed to the rock. Um, in, in the Greek word, it was changed to uh, Petros, which means a rock. In Aramaic, it was Cephas, which means a stone, and um, um, that happened right after Peter makes one of the most prolific statements ever made in scripture. We're going to come back to that in just a moment, but um, this is Peter. He was a fisherman from Capernaum on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now, Peter was an impulsive and compulsive leader. Often he would speak and act before he thought things through. Uh, Peter was the guy who, I love him because there's so much like me in so many ways and so much like you in so many ways and so much of a failure in so many ways, just like us, just like us us. And yet God uses them amazingly. But Peter's the guy when they're sitting in the boat and the storm is going on and all the rest of the guys are ripping each other's life jackets off and holding onto the gunnels and hoping they're not going to drown. And Jesus appears on the water and um, they think it's a ghost. And Peter says, if it's you, Lord, tell me to come to you. Right? And the other guys are going, Peter, you lost your stinking mind. Are you kidding? Right? Never really thought through. Just, if it's you, Lord, tell me to come. And the Lord says, come. And now Peter's obviously facing a great challenge and dilemma in his life. But uh, here's a reality. Outside of Jesus, Peter's the only other person who ever walked on water. 
Um, and so although there's an impulsive and a compulsiveness to them, uh, him, there, God allowed him to see some things and be a part of some things that others didn't. That was one of the things he said that you can never forget. And uh, the next time, uh, another statement he made that really, really challenges my thinking is when Jesus is just before he's going to go to the cross and he's washing the disciples' feet. And um, he comes to Peter and he says, uh, Lord, you will never wash my feet, right? Which was probably a good statement in the sense of th- those roles should have been reversed. Uh, Peter should have been the one washing Jesus' feet, but nobody was washing feet except for Jesus. And Peter goes, well, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, unless I wash your feet, you have nothing to do with me. And Peter says this, well, then I want a whole bath. <laughs> if you need a bath, have a bath at home, right? And uh, that's basically what the Lord is teaching him. But there, there's that that impulsiveness that, that he was just filled with. Um, in the garden, not too long afterwards, they come to get Jesus, and it's Peter who takes out the sword and lops off that guy's ear. The same Peter who had just a little while earlier said, even if everybody else denies you, Lord, I will never deny you. And within probably eight or ten hours, the one who said, I will never deny you, Lord, has denied the Lord three times. And the cock crows, and Peter goes out, and he weeps bitterly. That's the guy who wrote this book. But his life has changed as God is growing in him and developing in him. And, and there's some really cool things that happened in Peter's life as God was working in him. Peter, the one who had gone out and denied the Lord and goes out and weeps bitterly. Do you remember after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Lord says, go and tell the disciples and fill in the blank. Okay, I'm gonna try that again. That was really pretty bad. Okay. Go and tell the disciples and Right, because the Lord's all about restoration. I'm so thrilled about that in my own life, and I'm thrilled about that for our church and the people in our church. God is always about restoration. God is always about seeing things restored and made new again. And, and so uh, after the resurrection of Christ, they're out uh, fishing again, not being very successful, and they're coming to shore, and they see somebody on the shore. He's uh, cooking up some breakfast, and Peter realizes it's the Lord, and he jumps out of the boat and swims the shore. There's still that impulsive, compulsive thing going on for him, and the rest of the guys are like, hey, Peter, we had a road ashore. Where are you going? Right? But anyways, into shore he goes, and here's a really cool part of Scripture. Peter, who had been a massive failure, just like us, Lord says, Peter, do you love me? You know I love you, Lord. Peter, do you love me? You know I love you, Lord. Peter, do you love me? All kinds of implications of those words, but you know I love you, Lord. Then go and feed my sheep, and there's a restoration that happens for Peter that's available for every follower of Jesus Christ, no matter how far we think we've fallen, how messed up we think we are, where Christ is ready with forgiveness to restore. One more thing about Peter. Peter makes one of the most prolific statements I believe was ever made by a man. It's found in Matthew chapter 16, verses 16 to 18. It says, And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Upon this rock. Upon what rock? Upon Peter? No, of course not. It's not upon Peter. It's about what he just said. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter is not the first pope. Peter was a failure. Peter failed before. Peter failed after. He needed restoration. And God did work in his life that was amazing. Um, It wasn't on Peter that the church was built. It was on what he said that the church was built. You are the Christ. And on this rock, I will build my church. The rock that will not move is not you, it's not me, it's not our church, it's not some system. The rock that will not move is Jesus Christ, the Lord. And that's what we are built on. And that's where our hope is. And that's what we are going for. Peter is not the rock. His name means a rock and a stone. But the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel fulfilled, that is our rock. Okay, so this book, it's written to a group of people, a group of churches in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. So where are these churches? Where, where was he writing to? Um, you remember last week we were talking about Saul on the road to Damascus, and, and that was in Syria. It wasn't lost on us that uh, the, the, uh, Saul's going up there to kill Christians in Syria today. Same thing's going on. It wasn't lost on us that. Well, this area is just a little bit further north. It's in what we call Turkey today. It's in the land of Turkey. So it's on the northern border of of Syria and on the northern border of Iraq, today's map. Um, And that's where these groups of people were. These are like little provinces that were up there. And so he's writing to these people. And he doesn't know all of these people. He he calls them something in just a minute. He calls them them exiles. And we're going to look into that, what that meant. And he's writing to them with the growing hope that they have in Christ as they face difficult days. Hey, I said it already. We're going to face difficulty this week in some form or another. You're going to face a difficulty. In this book, we're going to learn so much about who the Lord Jesus Christ is as the foundation and how we live through the difficult times. We're going to examine the rock that will not move and how he is our helper in the hard things. So, With that in mind, let's dive right now into the text. Here we go. Um, Verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. First thing we want to see is the work of the Father. The work of the Father, who we are in Him. Fully known strangers, I call this message. It's a play on words, obviously. How can he be a fully known stranger? Well, these people were strangers uh, to Peter. Uh, They were strangers to, here's the word. He says in in the ESV, it uses the word uh, exiles. They are exiles. In other versions, the, the word strangers is used or pilgrims is used. In the New American Standard, they use the word aliens. Only in the United States of America, if you don't belong to that country, are you called an alien. Only Americans could do that. You're not, you're not of us? You're an alien. Okay, you, don't have, you may not have a you know, green head and horns coming out of your... But it, uh, only Americans could possibly do that. But um, they're called aliens. In uh, 1 Peter 2.11, he calls them sojourners. 
Um, it's the idea of, I don't have a nationality here, and I'm in a temporary residence. These are people who belong to some other land and people who are temporary, temporarily residing with a people whom they do not belong. That's true of you and I. We make so much about our Canadian citizenship, and it's a blessing to have a Canadian passport when you travel. Um, just talk to people who don't have a Canadian transport, passport when they travel about the journey that they go through, and we see some of the benefits we have. But our citizenship is not on this earth. Our citizenship is in heaven. We look forward to something far greater that's coming. Our hope is in something far more. And so when he calls them exiles, he's not talking about people who have been kicked out of somewhere and they've been forced to be somewhere else. We're, just, we're pilgrims. We're just passing through here. This is not our home. And follower of Jesus Christ, be careful how firm you put your roots down where we are. This is not our home. We get so caught up in all that we have here and all the blessings that we have. And they're amazing what we have, but this isn't our home. We look forward to something that is far greater in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is not on earth. We look forward to something that is far better. Well, he says in the text, he says... Elect exiles. Elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now that word elect scares a lot of people, so let me tell you what it means. They are elect. means they're chosen. That's what it means. It didn't help you, did I? Because that's just made it worse for you. Like, what do you, what do you mean we're chosen? What do you mean we're chosen? Well, we're chosen people according to the foreknowledge of God. Their election is according to the foreknowledge of God. God's choosing is not random and uninformed, but according to his foreknowledge, which is just an aspect of his omniscience. If God is God, then he has to know. But let me say this. Foreknowledge and election is not, well, God just kind of somehow knows what the decision is we're going to make down the road because he's God. That's not foreknowledge. That's not election. Chosen in him before the foundation of the world. God chose. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you 100% know you were chosen of God. Some people say, well, that's not fair. What about the people that aren't chosen? Hey, I'll tell you what's not fair. What's not fair is that God created an amazing earth that was beautiful and it was perfect and it was out, without sin in it. And man chose what he wanted over what God wanted. He wanted what he wanted more than he wanted what God wanted for him. He made that amazing thing. It's like as a parent, you go and you do all this stuff for your kids and you get it all set up and, and they just go, yeah, 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 I don't want that, I want this. And you're like, well, that's not fair. It's not fair that God made the heavens and the earth and set it all out before us and we chose what we wanted more than we chose what God. It's not just Adam and Eve. We do it every day. What's not fair is that God had to send his only son to die for my sin. That's not fair. What's not fair is that Jesus Christ had to come and live a perfect life and be the righteous and right sacrifice and die on a cross for my sin. That's not fair. What is amazing is that God would choose anyone. Not that he didn't choose someone. It says, 
elect exiles, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Some other verses that kind of support this, and there's, I'm going to come back and talk about this because it's, we'll get into this more as we go through the book because it's a, it's a doctrine, it's an important doctrine, and it's not easy to get your head around if you think, I've got it all figured out. I don't have it all figured out. I just know what God's Word says, and uh, I'm going to believe it because God's Word says it. But um, here we go in Romans 8, 29. says, For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he also called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also he glorified. Over in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ in every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And over in uh, 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 4 and 5, he says this. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, you know what kind of man we proved to be among you for your sake. What an amazing thought that God would choose you. What an amazing honor and what an amazing hope there is for every follower of Jesus Christ. You see, there's none righteous, no, not one. No one seeks after God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The amazing thing is that God in his loving passion chose you. Thank you, Lord. See, grace proceeds from God. He is the initiator. I'm dead in my trespasses and sins, and he makes me alive. And as we read in Ephesians, I was chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Uh, that was the work of the Father. It's who we are in him. We are sons and daughters living in this world, but this world is not our home. We are just sojourners. We are pilgrims, and we are looking forward to something even greater. Now here's the next thing. It's found in the next words, and that is the work of the Spirit. Uh, take a look at what the Spirit of God, uh, what the Spirit of God does in us. Um, says there, the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus. The care of the Spirit of God in our faith in Christ. If you've trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, then this text says you've been foreknown by God, and it says in the sanctification of the Spirit, in the growing up, in the becoming holy in the Spirit. See, we tend to think, I think sometimes as Christians, I think as Christians, we, we've kind of worked through the salvation is not of us, it's of God. I didn't earn it, I didn't deserve it. Uh, God was the one who was the initiator of my salvation. God was the one who was the primary worker of my salvation. I was dead in my sins, he made me alive, and I believed. Uh, the only part I have is to believe. But then we come to sanctification. I think sometimes we almost become work-centric in our sanctification. That somehow, as a follower of Jesus Christ, now it all depends on me. Now I've got to perform. Now I've got to do this stuff on the checklist. Now I've got to, that's not what this text says. I love what this text says. It says, in the sanctification of the Spirit. 
of the Spirit. God's Spirit is sanctifying us. Now here's the difference. In salvation, it's initiated and the primary working, it's all of God. I have no control over any of it. But in sanctification, God's Spirit is working in me and in cooperation with the Spirit, I am moving forward in my walk in Jesus Christ. I'm becoming less and less about me and more and more about Him. Sanctification is not performance-based either. It's about growing together in Jesus Christ. Hey, do you remember last week we were talking, I I gave a quote and I said, if the gospel has not saved you, it has not changed you. We had a great discussion about that in our small group. This is why every one of you should get in a small group. Um, So they get to critique my message as we go through. They don't say it like that, but they ask some questions sometimes, and it's really cool as we go through. And and one of the questions that one of the guys said is, that statement, I struggled with that statement. If the gospel has not changed you, it has not saved you, because it kind of makes it sound like it's all done, and now we're supposed to be perfect, Right? And, uh, but it was a quote. I can't change a quote. It wouldn't be a quote anymore. So I said it like it is. So we changed it in our small group. So now we've improved it. And uh, so the new improved quote goes like this. If the gospel is not changing you, it has not saved you. If the gospel is not changing you, it has not saved you. That's the work of God's spirit in every follower of Jesus Christ. Around here, I call it a stumbling forward or failing forward or falling forward. That all sounds very defeatist, but we're moving forward and in the struggle, we get to stand up again and confess our sin and get right with God and on we go and we move forward because God's spirit is working in us. And so our sanctification is us working in cooperation with God's spirit that we would be more and more like Jesus Christ every day. There's lots of byproducts that come out of your sanctification, that maturing in Christ. I wrote down three, and then there's the ultimate one, but here's, here's three. Here's three byproducts that come out of your sanctification. There's, there's the personal byproducts. There's things that are, you get from it. Uh, you get joy. You get peace. You get a sense of fulfillment. You get hope that come out of our sanctification. And you receive those things. And those are benefits that you have. And then there's benefits that come for the church as we spur one another on to love and good deeds. We come alongside and we help someone and we bring the truth and we bring it in love and they grow up in Christ. A brother or sister who is struggling and needs prayer and we come alongside and we help them or there's a need in the church and we're able to come along and fulfill that need and that's a byproduct of our sanctification. We see a need and in Christ we come alongside and we help with it. And then there's the byproduct of our sanctification for the world. As, as I more and more understand who God is and what he's done and trust him in my walk, then I'm more and more concerned about my neighbor and my family and my coworker and sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with them. And as a result, somewhere along the line, someone will come to know Jesus Christ the Lord and trust Christ as their savior. And your sanctification one of the byproducts will be how that's used in the world. But there's an even greater one. 
and a more foundational one and a more important one, and it's found right in the text. It says, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. For obedience to Jesus Christ. Ultimately, my sanctification is not for the blessings that I receive from it or even that the church could receive from it or even that the world would receive from it. Ultimately, my sanctification is for obedience to Jesus Christ. Ultimately, my sanctification is for God's glory. We talked about that a few weeks ago when we were back in um, Isaiah chapter 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And all of this he was seeing, it's all for God. It's all for his glory. See, sanctification falls short and is hard and difficult if we're doing it for ourselves, or if we're doing it for the people we serve or if we're doing it for the world because all of those things, they're all going to fail. They're all going to let us down. Ultimately, my sanctification is for the glory of God. My sanctification is for obedience to Jesus Christ. If you're serving in our church in any ministry area and your reason for doing it is to help that thing, you'll probably quit. You probably will. Um, I've been picking on Awana, so I'll stay with them. If, if your, your reason for serving Awana is just because you love little kids, believe me, after about three weeks, you might not love them so much anymore. And you're like, I am out of here. But if your reason for doing it is for the glory of God and for obedience to Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what comes, you're not giving up and you're not quitting and two or three or four years down the road, you'll see the fruit of what's happened in some of those byproducts, but the motivation, the heart, the reason must be for the glory of Jesus Christ, for the glory of God. That's why we grow up in Christ. We're going to see in a minute what he's done for us. But then as a result of that, we give ourselves completely over to, I'm sold out for Jesus. I'm going to do this for him. And when it gets hard, I'm not giving up. When it gets hard, I'm not going to quit. I'm going to be faithful because it's not for me. It is for him. And it's for his glory. Uh, Jason was just telling me between the services about uh, a young man that's considering what God's call is in his life. Is he going to go in ministry for the rest of his life? And is, yeah, like, I got to tell you that, but wind in his sails, he couldn't help but tell us that story in the back room. And, right? Uh, there are probably lots of times in Jason's life, because he deals with many of your students, and you know what they're like because you deal with them at home, uh, that he would like to quit. Look, can't we just, Lord, can't you just send me some more spiritual kids than this? Can't I just have like perfect children in my youth ministry? People who are perfect like me? Why can't, why can't I have those kind of people? Um, and I'm sure that battle goes on in his heart as it goes on in my heart every week. Why do we do what we do? We do what we do for the Lord Jesus Christ. And then when you hear a story like that, it's like God is awesome. What will God do in that? I don't know what God will do in that. But it's need to be a part of seeing what God does as he transforms. And people who don't quit because their focus is on the Lord and when they serve, they get to see those things come out the other end and rejoice in God's goodness and in his working. Because my serving, my sanctification, my growing up in Christ is about Christ. It's about him. It's about his glory. 
When we get our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ, that's when we see the the conquering of sin in our lives. See, again, if sanctification is, okay, I got to do better for Jesus, I got to do better for Jesus, I got to do better for Jesus, then when you come up against the difficult thing, maybe it's an area of sin in your life. Maybe maybe you're a businessman and you you struggle with taking money under the table. You know, if they just pay cash, I don't have to pay tax on it. I can give them a little bit of a discount and and you're being being convicted of that thing and and you're like, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm just not going to do that anymore. And, uh, but on Tuesday, a great big deal could come through with a lot of cash, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, okay, one more time I'll do it. Oh, Lord, I'm sorry. And well, it's because your eyes are on the wrong thing, right? You're on trying to perform, and your eyes aren't on the Lord Jesus Christ. And when our eyes are fixed on Him, the decision becomes easy. The result might be difficult, but you have to trust him and see what he will do. If it's temptation to sin in, in pornography or whatever it might be. If we fix our eyes on Jesus Christ is when we will see the solution and have the victory. But what we tend to do is just try harder. I'm not going to do that thing. I'm not going to do that business deal ever again. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to. And it becomes about me. And our focus needs to be on, I'm not going to do that because of the claim of Jesus Christ on my life. I'm not going to do that thing because the glory is for him. That's why I'm not going to do it. And I'm going to turn and I'm going to go in a new way because my mind has been changed. Well, how's all that possible? I think it's in this last part. He says, uh, in the sanctification of the spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. That sanctification coming out of obedience to what Jesus Christ, what would Jesus do? But then he has these words, he puts these words in for the sprinkling with his blood. You're like, what, what is that about? What is that sprinkling with his blood? Hey, the sprinkling with his blood is everything in this text. It is the whole foundation of why this all makes sense. The sprinkling of his blood is the picture of Christ's atoning work for us on the cross. That's why this is even possible. God's choosing you. God's spirit working in you in sanctification. All of that comes out of the foundation of what Christ did when he shed his blood on the cross. In the Old Testament it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. There were three times in scripture that we're not going to go into today, but three times in scripture where the sprinkling of blood was put out. It was all about being right with God. It was all about uh, redemption. It was all about atonement. It was all about what God does through the sprinkling of blood. We know that the sprinkling of blood is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. And without the shedding of his blood, the perfect and only righteous Lamb of God, there's no remission of sin. So why is my obedience to Jesus so important? Well, look what he has done for us. Look what he has accomplished for us. Look what's going on for his glory. And is that happening in your life? And so you have the sprinkling of his blood, which is a picture of the payment that was made so you could have eternal life in Jesus Christ. That's the foundation. That's why we live out our faith. We don't live out our faith because of what we can accomplish. We live out our faith because of what he's already accomplished through the sprinkling of his blood. And in the sprinkling of his blood, my sins are forgiven. Every sin I ever committed, every sin I commit, and every sin I will ever commit, all covered by the sprinkling of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
There's a way that seems right unto man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father except through me. Why? Because of the finished work, the sprinkling of the blood, which covered my sin. Follower of Christ. That's amazing. That should stir us. That should move us when we think about what Christ accomplished for us. What he did for us. And if you're here today and you've never trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to consider the claim that he has on your life. If you're sitting here today and you're like, I need that. What Christ has offered, I'm a sinner. I get it. I'm separated from God. All of us were sinners separated from God. And the only difference in this room is that there are sinners who are separated from God who've trusted Christ and there are sinners separated from God who haven't. It's not about us. It's about what God has done. And if you're here today and you're like, I, I need that. Well, how do you get it? Well, you don't work for it. He worked for it. You don't try harder to get it. He did everything that was required for it. You were dead in your sin. You had no hope. You weren't going after God. He's coming after you. He's the one who's flicking on the switch and you need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And today you can be saved. Faith alone, in Christ alone, because of his grace alone poured out on you. See, the work of Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of blood, the initial picture is the initial um, entrance into the covenant. That's the picture of salvation. And then there's the reality that my relationship with Christ is kept because it's his blood, because of his blood. My sin, past, present, future, covered, paid for, paid in full because of Jesus Christ. See, that's the rock. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Messiah. You are the one who was coming to deliver us. You are the one who was going to pay the price. You are the one who was the spotless lamb. You are the one. You are the rock that will not move. And then Peter finishes up these verses with a little sentence. He says, um, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. You can look at those words, and if you study through the other letters, you'll see that lots of times, Paul wrote that lots of times, good grace and mercy be unto you. And it was a greeting. The grace part was really emphasized toward the, to the, uh, towards the Greeks, and, and the peace part, the shalom part, was aimed more towards the Jews who would read the letter. And, but this is God's word. So they weren't just flippant words. And they were significant words. And I love the fact that he doesn't say, my grace and peace, like may God give you grace and peace. He doesn't say that. He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. May you have it in super abundance. You did not deserve salvation. God gave his grace. His unmerited favor poured out on you. You getting what you don't deserve. And, and Peter's saying, multiplied to you, multiplied to you. Hey, church, take hold of the multiplied grace of God in saving you and keeping you and preparing a place for you in heaven. Multiplied grace and multiplied peace. You ever find yourself watching the news and getting all anxious about what's going on? And okay, well, turn off the news and focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. My peace I give unto you, not peace like the world gives multiplied to you in the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, the Lord.
Well, so what? So what? I love how Peter effortlessly combines the work of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in this text. Yeah, I know that the Bible never uses the word Trinity. But there it is, right there. He just weaves it right in. Chosen by God the Father. Kept by the Spirit of God through the foundation of the work of Jesus Christ the Lord. People's write, Peter's writing to people he probably did not know and probably would never meet. But he's laying down for them a foundation because they're going to go through some difficult things. And we will too. And will we carry those things on our own? Will we keep trying harder and keep working more? And I've got to figure it all out and I've got to have it my way? Or, or will we be people of God who understand that, hey, God chose you. You want to talk about an awesome responsibility, an awesome privilege, and an overwhelming look what the Lord has done. He chose you. If you are in Christ, you know that 100% for sure. How, how do I know who God chose? Some people say to me, Paul, how do you preach the gospel like that? Like you just like throw the net out for everybody. You better believe I throw the net out for everybody. I'm always throwing the net out for everybody because that's my job. I throw the net out for everybody. We pull in the net and the Lord catches the fishes that will be, be caught. Not mine to do. That's not my responsibility. My responsibility is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and allow God to do his work in people's lives, bringing them to salvation in redemption. And that's your job. That's our responsibility because God the Father chose me before the foundation of the world. He keeps me by his spirit. And it's all based on the foundation of who Jesus Christ is, shedding his blood, sprinkled blood that covers everything in my past, everything today, and everything for eternity. That's the rock that will not move. And where's your hope today? Is your hope in that rock or in your things? Is your hope in that rock or in what you can do? My hope, growing every day more and more, is in Jesus Christ the Lord. Peter said it. Peter said it when he said it in Matthew. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's our rock. That's our hope. Let's pray. Lord God, this is your word, and we thank you for it. Thank you for the example of, uh, that Peter gives. Father, thank you for the clear word that he's given to us. Father, I pray that as we consider how you took a man like him, he was, he was as messed up as any of us are. And look what you've done in his life. And now you're using him to write a letter to, to, a, to churches all over an area that will be encouraged and helped and blessed through very hard and difficult times. Lord, if you can do that in his life, you can do that in my life, you can do that in our lives. Father, may we have our eyes fixed on the reality of all that we have in Jesus Christ through the sprinkling of his blood through the hope that we have that I don't walk tomorrow I don't walk today on my own but your spirit is with me and the understanding that you chose me God would I live out my life for your fame for your glory 
for your honor because you've been so good to us. You've been so good to me. May we be people of God. Strangers in this world, but known fully by you. Maybe even despised in this world, but cared for by you. Facing difficult things in this world, but you'll never leave us, nor forsake us. So God, we go with great confidence and great hope because you are the rock who will not move. We pray these things in Jesus' name.